Good morning. My name is Amy, and I am an alcoholic. Um, it is not my nature to be of service. It is something um, they told me I needed to do if I wanted to live. And when I got here, I didn't know if I wanted to live, but I knew I couldn't keep living the way I was. So that made me teachable. And it made me um, have a certain amount of willingness to listen to what you guys were telling me to do. And um, and I do that. I just follow directions. That That's... I wish I could, you know, tell you I'm brilliant and I thought of these wonderful things that would improve my life, but that's just not the case because I, I don't know what those things are. Um, so I do what I was told to do, and I, I just I want to thank the committee for allowing us to come down. And Danielle, you've been amazing, a wonderful host, and um, to, for the countdown last night. And um, I was so impressed how many women were still standing up at the end of that. And thank you, thank you all. That's a big deal for me. Um, I am a, uh, you know, I. <laughs> No offense, but I tend to think boys are a little stupid and they're not good for a lot of things. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, and I was just raised by these uh, women, these women of incredible strength. And, uh, and anyway, it was, you know, my poor grandmother, God love her, you know, she, uh, and she's passed it on. We're, we're a female dominated family and, and, uh, Men were seen as, you know, they could carry heavy things, and if you needed that, um, if you didn't have a handsome woman around to carry those things for you, and uh, and that, it, like June said, that they were just trouble. They were trouble. Men were trouble, and um, you know, and that the man was the head of the house, but the woman was the neck. And so, you know, um, and I grew up like that, and I grew up hearing those um, things and being passed on and witnessing them all around me. So, um, and I say that because um, my dad died a week ago today, and uh, he wasn't stupid. He was kind, and he was smart, and he was funny. God, my dad was funny. Um, and I'm going to miss him terribly he was supposed to be here with me this weekend he travels with me everywhere my dad was my biggest fan he just, my dad died with 30 years sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> and and he loved you God he loved you and I'm I'm reminded of a, something I heard when I out at the Cornhuskers in Nebraska and uh they said, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And we do. So thank you to the old timers. Thank you for the women that stayed around those stinky, gross boys when you were the only woman in the room. And uh, so, that, so that me and my girls could have women's meetings and women's conferences and women's retreats and all that stuff that we love. Um, my father in my sobriety in my home group which is Lampton taught this very bitter and angry woman about the fellowship of men and women and the beauty of that and what a gentleman looks like 
and my idea of boys has changed completely. And I thank you that when I come here, when we come here with those prejudices and those fears and those old ideas and those old beliefs that they can be pulled out root and branch by demonstration of the program. So I, I thank Alcoholics Anonymous for that. And my husband thanks you because I'm much nicer to him. Um, <clears throat> So my sobriety date is March the 6th of 2010. I did not pick that day. I would have, it was a Saturday, and I would have never gotten sober on a Saturday. That's stupid. Um, I was always going to do it on Monday. Mondays are great days to get sober, and I, come Monday, I was going to get a job, and come Monday, I was going to not drink, and come Monday, I was going to do all sorts of amazing things, and I was going to do them on Monday, and I would decide that on Thursday, and so we would uh, have a party to celebrate, <laughs> and I would miss Monday. So uh, I have to keep doing that. I lost so many years out there waiting on the right day to get sober. Um, I know my sobriety date was a gift from God. It was chosen. I, uh, you know, and that takes me to step one, that powerlessness. The foolishness that I could pick a sobriety date. If I had the ability to pick a day to stop drinking, um, then I wouldn't be powerless, right? Because I could just write it in on my calendar and important engagements would not be missed. And I would uh, show up for things I was supposed to show up. And uh, even when the results were in my favor, you know, like the book says, I, I will mess that up because I don't have the power to pick the day I stop um, by definition. I am an alcoholic, so what that means to me is that I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. When it enters my body, it develops in me a phenomenon of craving, and that craving sets me on a well-known spree, and I emerge again remorseful and ashamed, swearing off to never do it again. And then I think that was a great idea. I'm never going to do that again. But then I start getting real uncomfortable. I start getting real uncomfortable without a drink and because I suffer from a spiritual malady. And like every speaker has said, I love the way Sheldon uh, breaks it down. And you, with the breathing in and out, you know, like that sums it up. Like, I just, I, could you stop that? And I, so I'm real irritable and I'm disagreeable and I'm aggressive and I'm hard to get along with. And I seek uh, what Silkworth calls the, the ease and comfort that comes at once from taking the first drink. And that's what happens to me with alcohol. And so I know I qualify as an alcoholic. I suffer from alcoholism. Um, so when I was, um, I was born into like this nuclear family, my mom, who was smart and hardworking and uh, my mom is just amazing. I'm talking about high bar here, real high bar. My mom is well-liked, and she's funny, and she's smart, and she is strong, and she perseveres. And, man, I just wanted to be so much like her and knew that I was always going to fall short in her shadow because she was just so amazing. And uh, and then my dad... Uh, he he was more of a good time guy, you know. He he uh, he was so funny, and he he drove a motorcycle, and he would put me on the motorcycle, and my mom uh, would scream from the porch, you know, because that, and I think she doesn't like anybody to have a good time, and um, 
And she was, you know, we make people angry. I just remember my dad was a lot of fun and my mom was always tired and mad. You know, I just felt like she was tired and mad. And who wouldn't be tired and mad married to my dad, you know? Because uh, he was a budding alcoholic and he and, and all the things that we suffer from in alcoholism he had. He was very inconsiderate and he was dishonest and he was selfish and he was self-centered, just like me. When I was little, they would say, Amy, you're just like your dad. You're so good in math, maths and sciences and things like that stuff came easy to me. I understood them. And they would say, you're just like your daddy. You're so smart. And when I was 14 and I was breaking curfew and every conversation at the dinner table was, what are we going to do with Amy? And they would say, you're just like your dad. And it meant something different. I knew what they meant. They didn't want me to have a good time either. And I needed to get, break away from these uh, folks that were holding me down, you know. Um, so my parents divorced when I was about seven, eight years old, and my dad uh, was in the grips of alcoholism. So I wasn't to have a relationship with my father until adulthood after he and mom divorced. My mom remarried a wonderful man who was a, a, a Vietnam vet, tank commander, Marine Corps, German, farmer, responsible, buddy, he is your dog in any fight. I, I was telling my kids, or my, my sponsees, words, it's grief. So sometimes in grief, like, simple things become hard, like I couldn't find my socks. So if I say the wrong word, I'm sorry, I'm still doing that thing. But they're not my kids, <laughs> they're my sponsees. <laughs> People I love, um... I was telling him, uh, on the way down, I had a boyfriend one time that uh, liked to put his hands on me. And my stepfather uh, kind of slid up behind him and just said to him, I'm heavily armed. And he meant that. Uh, so, uh, so that's the man that raised me. He was a protector and he was heavily armed. And his family meant everything to him, God and country and family. And he's a conservative, and he's real dry sense of humor, and uh, he's wonderful. And I, and I had all these great things and these well-meaning, amazing people around me, and I did not look like them. And I knew I didn't feel like them, and I knew I didn't act like them. And uh, I always had that wild side, you know. I wanted to be where the action was, where the party was. I love chaos. I, I, I create chaos if it's not available, and I am drawn to chaos. And uh, my mom, God love her, she sent me to private schools, and, uh, you know, the nuns would just shake their heads. And I would think, you know. You're not having any fun anyway. Who wants that, you know? Um, I, I, I just I identified as a bad seed. So when I came to you guys and you said, oh, this is sweet. I love it when they say this. They say, you're not a bad person trying to be good. You're a sick person and you need to be well. And I remember thinking, hmm. No, I'm pretty sure I'm a bad person. You know, I'm, I get the evidence is in and I have references and they will tell you that, uh, something's not right. I heard a speaker in Nashville say, I always knew something was wrong with me because people always said something is wrong with you. And I can identify with that because people always said, 
what is wrong with you? Because I will do all sorts of absurd and tragic things while drinking. I found the first drink uh, when I was between my freshman and sophomore year. Before I found the drink, I, had, I found boys. I love boys. I like all the boys. Um, girls don't like that in a friend. And because uh, I will often sleep with your boy. And... Uh, and I never realized, I couldn't figure out why people were getting so upset. I'm like, I don't want to keep him. You can have him back. Uh, it just, uh, nothing that like people, like honesty and morale, uh, morals and, 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 and sexual right and wrong and cheating and all those things that most people seem to pose to came very natural to me. And I didn't, I was like, well, you know, I couldn't find my people. Like, where is this all okay to to not live by any standards or principles? <laughs> that zero. And uh, the alcohol helped with that, too, man. The alcohol helped with that. Because if I did lose a friendship that maybe I valued, you know, the booze, man, the booze. And it would make it go away. I love um the first full paragraph and on page six of our big book that went in Bill's story. So when I got sober, I was trying to read Bill's story and I thought, oh, this doesn't make sense. And what does this even mean? And I'm not a stockbroker and dog girls and all that. And what the hell? And um, my sponsor took me to page six and the first full paragraph in Bill's story. And it says the horror and remorse of the next morning were unforgettable. So do you know what that means? Yeah. You know, and then Bill dare not cross the street lest he get run over. Have you ever been real sick in the morning and you can't make it where you need to get? Yeah, I know what that means. But my favorite line is at the last of that paragraph when he says, a pint of gin and oblivion. And in one paragraph, Bill woke up shameful, remorse. All those things that we hate. The world has gone to hell. People were jumping off buildings. You know, but all Bill needed was that all-night joint to supply what he needed. Yeah. And then oblivion. She said, you know what that means. And that's where I began to understand Bill. And I understood that it didn't matter what era we were born in, what year it was, whether I was a man or a woman, whether I had a lot of money or no money. It didn't matter the creed, color, or, or content. What mattered is what alcoholism looks like on any of us. You know, and that's what alcoholism took me to. I, I hear a lot of uh, smart people who quit drinking early. Congratulations. Very, very bright of you. I um, I was drugged by alcoholism. <laughs> I would refuse to let go. Like, I, I battered and tore up. And, um and so, but I drank alcoholically from the first drink. I loved what alcohol did to me. I liked what alcohol did for me. And I knew that it was something I was going to continue to do. Alcohol immediately from the first drink took priority in my life. It became more important than anything else. Friendships, boyfriends, sports, school. Uh, I know you think I'm cool, and I am. I played trombone. And uh, when you're like in seventh grade and you're real skinny and you got buck teeth and you're packing a trombone, beating up everybody on the bus trying to get through, I was real cool. And um, my sister was always the smart one. She picked the flute. It was like that big and it could fit it in your backpack, you know. Um, 
So, but none of those things mattered once I took a drink. None of those things mattered at all. I was going to drink as much as I could, as often as I could, you know, and I drank as fast as I could. Um, I am a violent person. I did not grow up in a violent home. I was not witness to violence growing up. I am filled with rage. I don't know why nobody ever did anything to me, but, buddy, I will burn your house down. No, I, I'm an arsonist, and and uh, uh, and I and I have all this rage, and I don't know why. And so when and I love to fight, and so when I drink, I'm gonna fight. I, I told you about that guy that put hands on me. My sponsor said it's very important that I mention I was not a battered woman. Those men were defending themselves. <laughs> Because I will climb you like a spider monkey, and I'm carrying a knife, you know, like, ah! I, I have to fight. I want the chaos and the noise out here to match what's going on in here, because I can't make this be quiet. And so it levels itself out that way. Um, I changed high schools four times. We never moved. My stepdad was not active military. I cannot get along with you, and so I'm going to go to a new place because I don't know how to be accountable. I don't know how to look for my part in anything. My problem is always them, those, and theys constantly. It is circumstances. It's that teacher. It's that coach. It's that girl. It's that boy. It's that car. It's that job. My problems are always external. I am so far from looking inward for a solution to my problems. You're the problem, and the best solution I got is to get away from you, right? And that's always going to fix things when I get a new boyfriend or a new friend or a new job or a new school. None of it fixed it. You know, there there was I. Um, I was an emotional teenager. Um, I got pregnant at 19 and had my daughter, Sarah. And uh, she's amazing, and she loves me in spite of. And she turned out amazing in spite of. You know, um, she deserved better. She was born to a 19-year-old uh, bedeviled woman. And when you have a child in a home of a bedeviled woman who's with little control of her emotional nature, Rules, uh, little to no use to anyone, right? The bedevilment. Uh, it creates a, an unsafe environment for a child. So I have nervous children <laughs> because it's, it's an unsafe environment. They don't know what mom's going to do, who's coming home, what's going to happen next. And uh, <clears throat> she had a little poo bear, and she ate the... She would do this, and she ate a bald spot in poo just because she was so nervous. I saw it. I was like, oh. And my son, who's my third child, he just started therapy last week, and I asked him, I said, do you want me to go with you? I'd hate for you to, you know, spike in on some childhood trauma and just walk the streets drooling, you know. No one be able to find you rocking somewhere. Childhood trauma, childhood trauma. He started laughing. He said, I think we'll be good on the first visit. If I need help, I'll call you. I was like, okay. Good job, son. Uh, but so Sarah was born, and, and I didn't change. Nothing changed. 
Nothing changed. I didn't say, I am now responsible for this beautiful little child, this this magical creature that God has, has blessed me with, and I'm going to cook dinner at 5 o'clock, and we're going to face, uh, you know, take baths at 7 and say prayers and read stories, and I'm going to tuck her in, and I'm going to lock the doors, and I'm going to keep her safe from everything. I did not do those things. She just became the thing that was with me while I still did all the things. Um, I started working at a bar because we should all work at bars. And uh, I started dating the bouncer because I told you I like to fight and I like a fair fight. So I started dating the bouncer and uh, he and I would fight. God, we fought. Oh, we fought, we fought, we fought. And when I'm drunk, I think I can whoop a Marine. Um, I cannot. But I will try. And uh, so we fought. And again, the child's there. I ended up pregnant by him. He did not want a baby, and he left. So I married his little brother. I am from Kentucky, but that's not why. And I rationalized that because he wasn't my brother. So... It was fair game. Uh, and again, you know, boys are so easy. I was just, I told him, I sold him this dream, you know. I told him how great it was going to be. He didn't like his older brother either. So we had a common enemy. You know, and that worked out. So we joined forces. Um, and he was, he's amazing. He's still an amazing man. He is a good father, man. And, you know, that just shows me I don't pick good things. I don't pick good things. I don't. My, you know, that was just random how that worked out. But I got real lucky because he is a good husband and he's a good father. Um, he was married to a drunk. And he didn't know what he was in for. And when we got married and Led Zeppelin played through the chapel, and I looked at him and he looked at me and I said, I need a beer. And he said, I know. But he didn't know. He, the narrator said, he did not know. Um, because it got bad. <laughs> it got bad. And uh, about a year into that marriage, and, and I want you to know this. So I went to nursing school, and I got an LPN license, and he's going to work, and he's uh, working to become a master journeyman electrician. And we're in our early 20s, and we have these two beautiful daughters, and we bought a three-bedroom ranch, and there was a creek in the back. And I had a car, and he had a car, and everything looked like it should be okay. But inside our home, it was not okay. See, I get drunk and I want to fight and I want to bust all the dishes in the kitchen and those two little girls are hiding in a closet in their bedroom. Warped lives of blameless children, lest we forget. And he said, I'm taking the girls and I'm leaving you because something's wrong with you. And uh, that's called frothy emotional appeal. In the book, it says that it seldom suffices. But I was 25 years old, and I knew something was wrong. And I knew my drinking was a problem. And I knew that I couldn't stand to lose one more thing. The book talks about your bottom can be when the next thing you're going to lose is not something you're willing to give up. And I wasn't willing to give up those kids and that family because in my mind, since I was nine years old, when I got out on my own and I had my own husband and I had my own house and I had my old kids, I would be okay. And I wasn't okay, but I couldn't lose those things because then what? So I told my husband I would quit drinking. I swore off. 
I took that. You know those things only happen when I'm drinking. Yes, I'm starting to connect the dots. <laughs> and uh, so I swore I'd never drink again. And like a couple weeks later, I thought, I wonder if he... We didn't really go over the details of that. I wonder, um, did he think I meant forever? Or, like, maybe we should renegotiate, you know, that. I felt like it was made in haste, you know, because I'm getting real thirsty. And he's real happy that I'm not drinking. And I'm thinking, oh, this isn't going to work for me. Um, my dad had gotten sober. He got sober on my 18th birthday. That was my dad's birthday. So I called him, and I said, uh, Dad, I think I got what you got. And he said, why don't you come over, Amy, and we'll talk about it. And I thought, thank God, somebody's going to listen to me. (laughs) And I went over, and my dad told me about you all. And he said, I think they can help you, too. And my dad took me to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And and old days are ninjas, man. They are sneaky. And it's okay. Um, You'll catch on later. But they're ninjas. Just know that things that look coincidental may not be. And uh, that night I met a woman uh, who was going to become my first sponsor. And I thought, what a God thing she was there, and I was there, and we talked. What that was amazing. And I found out years later, of course, my dad had called her and said, I'm going to bring my daughter to the meeting. Would you please come? She was a ninja. She's still a ninja. Her name's Beth, and she's such a part of my life, my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous, and my life uh, in and out of these rooms because she's amazing. And um, so Beth and I started going to meetings, you know, and I quit drinking. You all had coffee, and you smelled good, and there were sometimes cookies. I liked AA. You were funny, and everywhere I had been since I was seven years old, I had been in trouble. You know, always the teacher's mad, sit at the front of the room, the bus is mad, the girls are mad, the coach is mad, the cops are mad. Your mom is mad, your auntie's mad, your grandma's mad, everybody's mad, you know, because... Uh, I do things that make people mad. And uh, I came to you and you weren't mad. It was the first place I'd ever been where I wasn't in trouble. Where you would laugh when I told you something horrific I did. Oh, that's funny. I did that too. I'm like, who are these strange and wonderful people? Um, and so I, I, I loved Alcoholics Anonymous and I got sober and I was sober about three years. What I did not do. This was... Um, in 95 through 98 and in Louisville there was a lot of fellowship sobriety but the program had kind of taken a back seat and they were telling us things like meeting makers make it meeting makers make it to meetings yes they do yes they do they absolutely do Um, but there's a program there's 12 steps that are designed to make us useful once more. And I didn't do those. I went to a lot of meetings. I will say that the program was being demonstrated in front of me. I just couldn't pay attention. I couldn't see, you know, what these people were doing. 
I could, I, I, everything was face value, you know, because we're real goofy when we first get sober. And so I couldn't pick up on the underlying tone and, and not to take anything away from that. It worked for me at 25. I feel like I had I absolutely suffered from alcoholism, but I was going to learn about the grips of this disease later. Um, three years sober, I, it had gotten better at home, so much better. We had had two more children. Uh, he liked me again. And so uh, we had bought a bigger house and we had moved further out to the country. And so now I have Sarah and Allie and my only son, Zach, who's the apple of my eye. The girls say I would let him starve so the boy would eat. But he's... He's my boy. And uh, then I have my baby girl, Grace, Sissy, who I adore with all my children, amazing, amazing human beings. Um, and so I got real busy because of this life that Alcoholics Anonymous gave me. See, my family has grown, and we've bought a bigger house, and I'm working, and I want to be there and not with you anymore. It's a hassle to get to you. I'm not plugged in with you. When I'm with you, I'm coming in late, and I'm leaving early, and I'm looking at the clock. And I don't know if you've ever witnessed this in your home group or in your area, Alcoholics Anonymous, but have you ever seen somebody just kind of fade out while they're still standing, it's almost like you put your hand through them. They're no longer there with you, and they're fading out. And I faded out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what happened was I was at a sobriety based on fellowship, and I stopped coming to the fellowship. My husband grew marijuana. He was very good at it. I got a plan. I like God. God made weed. I'm going to smoke weed and I'm going to be rocketed into the fourth dimension. I'm only going to use it for spiritual growth. Like the Native Americans. I bought some tie-dyes and a guitar. Put a fire pit in my backyard and planted a garden. And I'm going to be a hippie. And... uh Man, I had plans and designs, you know. I was only going to drink at home. But when I smoke weed, I get thirsty. So here comes the booze, right? Here comes the booze. And, but I'm only going to drink at home, and I'm never going to drink on Sundays, and I won't drink hard liquor, and I'll only drink beer, and I'm only going to have six. And I didn't realize that in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a whole paragraph about what we do to control and enjoy our drinking, the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. Page 30, man. Page 30 hit me right in the face. And whenever somebody goes back out or somebody relapses and we have well-meaning people who go, what happened? I can't believe it. You can't believe a drunk drank? Page 30. I can't believe we're all sober. We're the miracles, man. That's the big deal. Supposed to drink. When we don't, that matters. So, um, you know, page 30, the persistence of the solution is astonishing. We will pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. Um, so there I was, smoking weed and making tadas and overgrowing green beans. It, they, there's a lot of those. Um, I, you know, like, I don't know if there's any farmers, but I thought seven rows, you know, 40 foot long, that will barely be enough. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, 
And, and so this begins the next journey. So I'm drinking again. So alcoholism's taking over again. I want you to know it was 10 years before I made it back to you. 10 years before I made it back to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what was in store the next 10 years was the annihilation of all things worthwhile. I cannot control my drinking as I had planned, right? Uh, powerlessness, unmanageability, right? We ended up divorced, and uh, I ended up taking half the marijuana, and uh, and I became a gangster. So, who was? It's one of those fears talking about that chameleon, man. I went from angry country girl, cuss you out, shoot you, fight you, stab you, to a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, to weird hippie chick with too many beans. And now, now I'm packing a gun, I'm slinging weed, and I'm uh, dating a guy who uh, is in the Branchville Penitentiary with an expected release date of 2050. Yeah. Now I'm her. Uh, but the rage, man, that rage came back and it found a good place in that, man, because uh, when he got arrested, I fell apart. Um, there were things that needed to happen when uh, the marshals picked him up, U.S. marshals picked him up in Ocala, and I was back in Louisville, and there, there's things that need to happen when that happens. And uh, I'm I'm his girl, so I know what's supposed to happen and where things are and, and the combination to the safe. And and I go, too much like this week, I just went about the business of taking care of what needed to happen. Um, the people that we did business with came to me and said, what do you want to do? Are you going to continue for him or do you, what are you going to do? And I said, I, I got this. We're going to be okay. You know, I'll still run things from here, and it was going to be great. But um, I couldn't make that pain go away. I couldn't make that pain go away of him being gone because I'd made him my God. And uh, so I picked up a product that we sold, and um, and within eight months of that side dish, I was uh, the guns were gone, the monies were gone, the cars were gone, and those people were saying you got to make a choice. You cannot be at this table with that kind of habit. You know, we're offering you money, property, and prestige and this false sense of power and control over your life. You know, men would walk me to and from my car. If I wanted something, I hit a wall and somebody came down and said, Miss Amy, what can I get for you? You know, so you can have this or you can have that booze and that dope and all those things that are muting your feelings and making things go away. What is your choice to be? Powerless. I am powerless. Because I said, I'll be back. And I hit the streets. I ended up living on the streets for four years. Four years of my life on the streets. I know that God kept me. I would call my dad. They called my dad $10 Daddy. 
because when my dad would show up, he would buy me cigarettes and some bologna, and he would never give me more than $10. It was all I could get from him, $10. And, uh, but I, my stepdad, who was naive, and he's not one of us, and I was able, he would show up, and I'd talk him out of two hun, you know. They'd be like, who you calling? What's daddy? Because <laughs> like, we're always begging, you know. We're always calling, trying to put the touch on somebody. He'd get somebody to bring me what I need, and I literally would wake up with nothing and spend $400, $500 in a day and go to bed broke without a cigarette. I walked the streets. I laid with men for money. I wasted away. I was spiritually dead. I know it did not value my life, and I did not value yours. I did not value yours. I became what the book calls dangerously antisocial. Um, business got bad because people don't like an angry prostitute. <laughs> they like you to smile and laugh at their jokes. Wasn't nothing funny by then, Mom. Huh? Give me my money. Yeah, I was good times. Thank God for men that love crazy women. Because there's men who love crazy women. There's men who are like, oh, my God, she's crazy. Get away. And there's other men that are like, oh, my God, she's crazy. <laughs> Those are my men. <laughs> Those are the ones I, that's who likes me, yeah. Um, because I'm crazy and I'm unpredictable and, I, and I'm not in control of my emotional nature. I had no contact with my children during those years. I want you to know when my oldest daughter turned 16, the news said white woman found, and my daughter spent the day calling morgues and hospitals looking for her mom. Because that's the pain that we inflict on our loved ones. March the 6th, 2010, my dad, my dad picked me up. Cussed him out that day. He said, Amy, you're going to die. No want you to go to detox. And I called him everything but dad. I said, you spent your whole life in Alcoholics Anonymous helping all those people. Letting them stay at your house and doing all that. And you won't even help your own daughter. And he was, he was trying to help me. And once again, my dad took me to detox. It was a Saturday. Something happened and I stayed. I came to you with the gift of desperation. I hope that you have the gift of desperation. I hope that you never lose the gift of desperation. I hope you know what desperation is. Because on those streets, I learned what desperation is. Desperation is begging change so you get a dollar and go in the store and find out they raised beer to a dollar ten. They had to call the police on me that day. I said, the what? Excuse me? They said, yeah, that, that's a dollar ten. It went up last night. I said, oh. See, that's the same damn beer that was in there last night when I went to sleep. That's dollar beer in there. You didn't have a truck delivered. They're like, Amy, because they know me because I stay in one neighborhood. Amy, 
I mean, just pay the ten and say, I ain't paying nobody ten cents. Ooh, 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 you know, I kick the chip display over. I weighed about 95 pounds. I grabbed my beer. I'm running out. I'm just shaking the hand. Like, good God, we know where you, you, you'll be back here this afternoon. You know, we're the only store, you know. Crazy. They're glad I'm sober. Um, I terrorized that neighborhood, my God. And it, it was a, you know, it, I, I was homeless in an area called Victory Park. Victory Park is known to be one of the most dangerous areas of Louisville, and, and it's not the projects, it's residential. Um, and it's, it's run by a, a group of people <laughs> uh, on a street level, and they would just shake their heads at me. They said, what are we going to do with this crazy white girl? She just, she starting fires in people's houses. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, I said, what you going to tell? <laughs> he said, yes, I, I am. You're trying to burn my house down. Uh, <laughs> God kept me. Um, anyway, so I went to detox, but that's what I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. I brought this foul-mouthed, angry, bitter, I smelled of street and disgust and men. And I couldn't stand me and I couldn't stand you and nothing was funny. And that's what I brought to you. I brought that and I laid it at your feet. And you helped me. <sighs> Women of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I had a sponsor. She was real mean. She was about this tall. She would, uh, she, Clancy talks about the Teflon that covers the alcoholic and the message can't get through because we have the shield up to truth and to anything that's hurtful. And we, we bounce it off and she could pierce through that Teflon. And I called her one night and I was feeling bad about something and she said, little girl, the only people we're going to feel sorry for is anybody that met you. Up on me. I call her up. I say, some of the girls, because I stayed at a treatment center, it was a homeless shelter. I wish it was fancy. It wasn't. It was a homeless shelter. Let me get honest. And they had a treatment program. And uh, I call her up. I say, some of the girls, their sponsors, pick them up and take them to meetings. Do you ever do that? She said, did I ever take you to the liquor store? Did she said your recovery is your responsibility. But you know what? When I get to the meeting, she was always there and she'd give me a ride home. Because she had to see something from me, man. She had to see the effort from me. And she didn't pull any punches and I could hear her and she took me through those steps. And we got on our knees and we did a third step and we got to that fourth step and I wrote the stuff down and I went to tell her and I had 145 people on my harms list. She looked at me for one hot second. She said, you are not that important. <laughs> you did not harm that many people. You are, you are not the governor, the mayor, the lady. You are not that important. But I had like my cousins, babies, sister, because they had a birthday party and I didn't come. 
And she said, did they have the party? And I said, yes. She said, they're glad you didn't come. You did not harm them. Okay. All right, then. And uh, we went through those steps. And I do want to tell you, I told you I, I, I had a baby by that older brother, and I was married to uh, the younger brother for 10 years. And at the number one resentment on my list was my mother-in-law. Because she never did treat me right. She never did appreciate. I gave her beautiful children by all her sons. She was so ungrateful. And, uh, man, my sponsor, she pushed that paper back over the across that table at me. And she looked at me. She, she had uh, her hair cropped real low. And she had that beautiful chocolate fish. She had her glasses on. She said, really? I said, what? She said, Really? Really, you know, and then finally I was like, ah, oh, that's horrible. She's like, oh, yes. It's like, Jesus. Uh, she, and I have to, that woman has died, and I, my amends to her is to be very good to her grandchildren and very good to, to my ex-husband, and that's how I do that. But that's why the fifth step is so important, I think, with a sponsor who's properly armed, because the things I believed and the, thing, the way I saw it, you know, as Bill sees it, Lois remembers, yeah. As Amy sees it, her sponsor helps. So I have to always have that second look at things. That sponsor ended up getting drunk when I was three years sober. And I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, my first three years in sobriety, they would tell the newcomer to stay away from me because I would 12 stomp you. And uh, I had very few skills, and you all had given me this valuable information, and I was out to save lives. I would beat you to death with the big book. Like, do you want to live or do you want to die? I ain't got time. Book tells me to keep it moving. Yeah, on to the next one. Uh, so I, I picked a sponsor who said to me, you know, you, you don't have to yell this to people. And I was like, well, how would they hear me? <laughs> I don't yell it. She's like, it doesn't. She said, the truth doesn't have to be yelled. The truth can just be spoken. Well, so Mr. Linda... Mr. Linda helped me to uh, be soft and not be scared to be soft. Because see, she taught me that all that anger and all that street, she said, little girl, you're scared. And I said, I ain't scared of nothing to Linda. So she said, yeah, you are. You're scared of everything. That's why you got your dukes up. See, I walk around my dukes up because I'm scared. I'm scared you're not going to give me what I want or you're coming for something I got. And so I got to keep my dukes up all the time. I got to keep my eye on you, what you're doing, what the temperature is. Man, that's exhausting. I sponsor a lot of women. I'm glad that I do. They keep me sane. 
They keep my feet held to the ground when I think I'm going to spin off the earth. Right? They help me get out of myself. I have a home group that I'm very involved in. We meet three days a week. It's called Lambton. We meet at 10.30 on the morning on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and we talk about God at Lambton. Um, I have uh, a lot of... Uh, Service work I do do. I, I do a step study at my house every week, and my dad loved that because he lived with me until we're, um, two weeks ago. I suit up and I show up no matter what's going on. No matter what. They tell me no matter who loves you, leaves you, or dies, you don't ever have to drink again. I brought this mess to you guys, this angry, cursing, oh. and you told me you won't need that stuff in here, Amy, you can leave it at the door. And I didn't believe you. I didn't believe you, but uh, I had no choice. This is the last house on the block for me. Uh, sobriety has been amazing. I've done amazing things. and. Uh, uh, I went back to school and I got a bachelor's degree and I, uh, my two youngest were teenagers, uh, early teens when I got sober and so I got to raise them and they went through adolescence while I went through the first through, you know, years of sobriety. We're like that Volvo commercial they lived. Because it was, there were days we didn't know, you know, there were days we didn't know and I thought, I'm gonna snatch this little girl up and beat her like she ain't mine. And that's <laughs> Because she's a little me, and she's defiant, and she, ooh, oh, my God, that little girl. Uh, but I did not lay hands on that child, which is a miracle. Uh, and I demonstrated consistency, and they didn't believe what I said. They weren't impressed with my alumni status at the local homeless shelter. They were like, and, Mom, so, Mama. And when I was two years sober on Mother's Day, that little baby looked at me and said, Why'd you even come back? Why don't you leave us alone? Man, I was gut punched. Gut punched. But I got in my car and I drove to a meeting. Women of Alcoholics Anonymous showed me how to be a sober mom. My sponsor helped me to stop parenting out of guilt. Because that's a bad place to parent from. How to stand in a truth. You taught me to be a parent to my children. Thank you. I was two and a half, three years sober. My boss really made me mad, and so I did what I do when I get mad, and security was called, and I was asked to leave. And um, I no longer had that job, uh, so I went to a meeting, and I raised my hand, and I said, what do you do hypothetically <laughs> if you cuss out your boss and lose your job? And they were like, well, sober people usually put in a two weeks notice and they have another job lined up. I said, interesting. Write that down for next time. Uh, I was five years sober. My son was hanging out down the street at this, uh, at a trap house. I knew what it was, but there was a little girl in there and he was 16, you know, so he's in there. And, uh, I know what these people are about and what they're doing in there. And I, uh, tell my son not to go down there. And my son does what 16 year olds do when they hot on the trail or something hot. And he run around the block and he went in the back door and he was there. And so I walked out of my house and went to meet my neighbors. Um, 
I kicked in their front door and told them I was bringing God and the fury of hell with me. And if my son was ever in there again, their house would not be standing the next morning. Don't you know who I am? You've got the right one now. Five years sober. I walk back around the block. My, my husband's out there mowing the grass. He watches me walking. He just turns the mower off and walks down the street. He said, I see you've met my wife. He said, the thing is about my wife, I don't know what she's going to do. <laughs> I called my sponsor to tell her what I had done to save my son. She said, you going to jail. <laughs> yeah, five years sober, man. I am still struggle, you know, with being in control of my emotional nature. Justified anger and taking the show over, man, taking back the reins. I'll do a third step prayer and that'll be fine, God, until I get scared. Then I'm going to run the show. We practice this, we practice this, we practice this. It always works out better when I stay out of the way. But those instincts and learning to trust this program, learning to trust what the old timers are selling you, learning, you know, I asked my sponsor one time, I said, when am I going to quit doing this foolish stuff? She said, when you get tired of making them amends. Why am I always wrong? Can't somebody else be wrong? <laughs> yeah. But it's a good life, man. And, and if you're new, don't drink. Don't drink. You know, they told me don't drink even if your ass falls off. You know, don't drink. And you'll get through whatever is coming your way and you'll learn. And your experience can be somebody else's lesson. My sponsor tells me that I have to take all these things for myself. I have to digest them. I have to digest my father's death so that I can help the next woman who comes in who has to bury her father. Because until I digest that, I cannot transmit something I haven't got. My middle youngest daughter tried to kill herself when she was 15 years old. I ran to that hospital and I pulled back the curtains of that ER room and I'm a nurse and I know what that looks like when they just fought like hell to save your life. And there she was and they had the machines on her to breathe and I dropped down beside that stretcher and I grabbed her hand and I yelled out, God, what would you have me do? Because in that moment I didn't know what to do. And an aide walked in, or a nurse, there was a nurse that came in, and she had been the one that fought so hard to save my little girl's life. And she looked at me, and she said, Amy. And I said, hi, sweetheart. I meet a lot of people, and I didn't recognize her at first. And she told me her name, and she said, I was an aide, and you were my nurse, and you're the reason I'm a nurse. If she hadn't been a nurse, who would have saved my little girl's life? There's these red threads, this magic that happens every day in between us and all around us. And if you just sit real still, you can see it. And I hope you never stop seeing the magic. Thank you.